Open with me to Luke chapter 1. It's awesome to spend this Christmas Eve morning with you guys. Um, World War II, there was a story about uh, an airliner that was carrying uh, naval crafts and and aircrafts. And they knew that there were German submarines uh, below them in the Atlantic waters, but they didn't know where. So the captain ordered their five best pilots to take their five best planes up in the air and continue to circle the area in hopes to find the, the German submarines and protect themselves against that threat. Well, the hours passed, and the sun set low. And the pilots were flying, and they could only see black above them and black beneath them and black all around them. And so one of the pilots radioed to the, cat, to the ship and said to the dispatcher, we have to land, we're running low on fuel, turn on some lights. And the dispatcher responded, we've been ordered a blackout. We can give you no light. Several minutes passed that another pilot radioed, radioed the dispatcher and said, we are way low on fuel, just give us some light. And the dispatcher said, we can give you no light. Several minutes later passed, and another pilot radioed in and said, just give us a little light. And with a broken heart, the dispatcher said, we can give you no light. And he flipped off the switch. And all five of those pilots sank into a cold, black icy Atlantic grave and slipped into eternity. With that story in mind, let's read of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, and we'll pick up with verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house of the Lion of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for their baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, and because there was no guest room available for them, and there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the house of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And we cross-reference that nativity uh, described by Luke with John's nativity, and I'll just read this to you in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Christmas story, it's a historical event when the light from heaven shone into the light of earth so that people who were perishing without light, people who were longing for direction and longing for peace now have light. This light, Jesus Christ, 
shown into the world. It's shown around the angels and said there's a Savior that's been born to us. The Christmas story is a story of light being born so that light can shine into our lives. The light of joy, the light of salvation, the light of forgiveness of sins, the light of restoration, the light of the Spirit of God, the light of eternal life, the light of a promise of heaven, the light of sonship and daughtership to God, the light of life has shone into our heart. This is the Christmas story. All throughout the Gospels, there's, uh, there's um, references to this light. In fact, Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and sort of like uh, the Lone Ranger taking off his mask or Clark Kent taking off his glasses. Those are just myths. But in reality, Jesus took off the mask of his earth suit, of this body. And he was a blinding light. And we see that um, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is like the brilliance of the sun. In fact, the sun pales in comparison to the brilliance of the light of the one who spoke the light of the sun into existence. Christmas is about light being born, and this light shines into our heart. And I love what John says about the light, the darkness has not overcome it. It doesn't matter if you have an entire night of darkness. The smallest light will cause the darkness to withdraw. You can't get rid of darkness by fighting it. You can't get rid of darkness by shooting at it. You can't get rid of darkness by being stronger than darkness. But you, you can drive darkness away. You can cause darkness to withdraw and to scatter and to flee by shining light. If you're in your room at night and it's dark, all you have to do is turn on the light switch. And what happens to the darkness? It runs under the bed. It runs into the closet and it hides. The darkness can never overcome light. All the light has to do is shine and the darkness withdraws. If there's a room of light, you can't walk in with a bag of darkness and open up the bag of darkness and cause the light to run and withdraw. No, but if you walk into a room of darkness and you have a light that's in a bag and you open up the light, then the darkness withdraws. The darkness can never overcome the light. The light always drives out the darkness. The darkness can never overpower the light, but you can block out the light. You can't shut out the light. Christmas is a story about the light of life being born in order to shine into our hearts. And I just want to give you three observations about this light of life that shines. And we'll break a little bit early because I want to invite everybody down to the fireplace room. If you keep walking that direction downstairs, it's the very last room on the left. We call it the fireplace room because there's a fireplace in that room, so we're very creative around here. But we would love for you all to join us in the fireplace room because some people from the community have pitched in and and contributed some gifts to some of our our children from Stop 6. And so they're upstairs, and and after service, we're just going to have a little Christmas with those kids and uh, just give them some gifts, and uh, we invite you to have some of the greatest hot chocolate in the world. So please stick around and share that, that Christmas moment with us. But uh, before we do that, I want to share with you three observations 
about the light of life that shines into the darkness and this light of life that will drive the darkness out of your heart and out of your mind provided that you don't block it out. All right, Luke chapter 2. Now let's move into verse 1 again and 12. Or let's look at verse 12 and we read, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Why was this baby? Why is Jesus? Why is the light of life? Why is the creator of all things lying in, of all things, a manger? Why was he born into such a hostile, uncomfortable environment? Well, back to verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, if you're God, and if you're going to visit earth, I mean, aren't you going to make hotel reservations? If you go on a vacation, then you would think you would make sure that you have hotel reservations so that you don't wind up on the street, right? We would think that far ahead, wouldn't we? Why didn't God? God did. God planned out every detail of the nativity, every detail of the life of Christ, every detail of the death and resurrection of Christ, every detail from before the world was even created. You see, Adam and Eve didn't fall in the Garden of Eden, and then God had to quickly move into plan B and say, how can we adapt? How can we adjust? How can we fix this? No, scriptures say that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. The cross was always the plan so that we could know God's love for us in a way that, that we could not have Otherwise, the cross was always part of the plan, and the manger was always part of the plan. Because this is how God operates. You can go into a museum, and you can see some of the most uh, amazing masterpieces by the most famous artists, and you can, you can see characteristics of their style, of their greatness, of their expertise, uh, incorporated into the, ma- into the masterpiece. So that you can even say, you know what, I think that this is a Van Gogh, or I think that this is a Da Vinci. And in the same way, the nativity scene has God's character. It has God's personality woven all through it. Why didn't God plan ahead to stay in the hotel room? Because a five-star hotel is not God's style. Comfort and convenience and ease is not God's style. The manger was always part of the plan. And the manger was always part of the plan because God's greatest gifts are hidden in the least places. Isn't that beautiful? Is that not the personality? Is that not the style of our creator, of our Lord and Savior? God's greatest gifts are hidden in the least, in the weakest, in the most broken places. This is why the angels said to the shepherds, who were living in the fields and watching their sheep by night. The baby's in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, not not in a five-star hotel, not in the greatest hospital, but in the manger, basically on the streets. Because the greatest gift that has ever been born in this world is hidden in the weakest and the least of all places. And this was the greatest moment in history. In 1969, the President of the United States said the greatest moment in human history just happened, and we set human boots on the moon. That was a great event, but not the greatest event. Infinitely greater than that event was not when man set foot on the moon, but when God set foot on earth. 
and he was born in a manger as a humble baby because this is God's style. He hides the greatest gifts, the greatest blessings in the least places, in the weakest places, in the broken places. And we can see nativity scenes that are decorated with Christmas lights and they're warm and they're comforting and they're very beautiful, but that's not like it was at all. If you go to Israel today, you don't see a lot of wood houses. Why? Because there aren't many trees. They had to import trees from Lebanon, and at a premium cost, they were very expensive. You're not going to invest in wood to build something like a manger for your farm animals. But you can walk through the hills where the shepherds watch the sheep, and recessed in these rocks are clefts. It's where Elijah prayed. It's where Moses prayed and communed with God, and Elijah communed with God. It's, it's, a, it's a rock, and, and it's recessed, just a matter of feet. Not, not a great distance, just a matter of feet. Maybe not even this far back from the stage. And it's called a shepherd's cave. So that if a shepherd had 20 or 40 sheep, and if the wind was really cold, or if the weather was bad, or if it was raining, or if, if there was some threat or danger from, a, from, a, um, from an aggressive animal, then the shepherd would corral all of the sheep in the shepherd's cliff, the shepherd's cleft. And then he would stand here, and he could stand in between the sheep, and whatever threat was on the other side. And many shepherds would use the same clefts. Which means 20, 40, 100 sheep would come and go out of the shepherd's cleft. And guess what the sheep did when they were in the shepherd's cleft? Well, you can imagine. They're animals. They used the bathroom. Those things were smelly. They were messy. Nobody went by and cleaned out the shepherd's cleft. And when God was planning every detail of his birth, his child's birth, God visiting earth through the Son of God... And the shepherd's cleft, that was part of the plan. It wasn't a default. Because God is the masterpiece, created a scene that was so consistent with his personality, with his nature. God hides the very greatest blessings in the very weakest places. You look at the gifts all throughout Scripture, the gifts of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were given the gift of a child, but when, how was that gift afforded to them? It was through brokenness and through barrenness, so that they had to come to a place of complete dependence upon God. Or you fast forward time and look at the gift of Moses' leadership and his anointing. Well, where was that gift given to him? It was given to him in the wilderness after being broken and hopeless for 40 years and detached from God. It was a place of complete desperation upon God. Or you look at the gift of leadership and wisdom and power and authority that God gifted to Gideon, the mighty deliverer. But when was that gift given to him? It was when he was first consumed with fear and timidity, and he had to trust entirely in God and not himself. Or the gift of wisdom that God gave to Solomon, but not before Solomon was in that least of places, that place of brokenness, when he said, the task before me is too great, my singular prayer is your wisdom, God. Or you look at David and the, the gift of, of war and the gift of being a general and the gift of boldness and being able to stand against a giant. But when was that gift afforded to him? Well, it was when he was in the least of places and, and the left out and overlooked younger eighth son, left behind to watch the father's sheep. 
Or you look at the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, who were gifted with the ability to peer through the ages, hundreds of years, so they could write down in Scripture prophecy with incredible specificity. But when were those gifts given to them? When they were at a place of fasting and tears and desperation upon God, so that they cried out to God through tears. And then they were gifted with these prophecies. And the greatest gift throughout the corridor of history, the greatest gift of the ages, the greatest gift of eternity is when the light of life shone into our world through Jesus Christ and that gift shone into the least and the weakest place. And that was a shepherd's cliff, a manger. And this is so encouraging because if you find yourself this Christmas season in a place of weakness, in a place of brokenness, in a place of confusion, in a place of hopelessness, where you don't know which way to go, or you don't know how to move the mountain that has been blocking your path for so long, or you don't know how to reach the people close to you that, that you care about. It's, it's a place of weakness. It's a place of brokenness. It's a place of helplessness. The beauty of the gifts of God that are found in weakness the greatest gifts that are found in weakness is that we come to a place where we realize that we are helpless, but we are far from hopeless. In fact, it's the very helplessness that drives us to our deepest hope so that we rely on Christ and His strength and His power and not our own. There's a saying, well, if you fall down, Make use of your time there and pick something up as long as you're down. Well, in the same way, when we're in a place of weakness and brokenness and helplessness, there's a gift from God there, a gift of strength, a gift of power, a gift of peace, a gift of healing, restoration of new promises, of a new day, and even the gift of salvation, which is why Jesus ultimately shone into this world. So the Christmas story first expresses to us That the greatest of God's gifts are hidden in the least places. He's the greatest gift of all humanity, the light of life, shone into a shepherd's cleft. Is that not incredible? And then the second characteristic of God's creativity and his compassion and genius in this story is that God shone his greatest gifts into the weakest place so that anybody can experience that gift. So that anybody can experience that gift. You know, while the angels were speaking to the shepherds and Mary was giving birth to Jesus, there was a lunatic not far at all from that place History knows him as Herod the Great. History also knows him as a homicidal lunatic. History knows him as the man who killed, had three of his sons murdered so they wouldn't be a threat to his, um, to his kingship. He had his, I believe it was a second wife killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. The guy is crazy. He was crazy. He was a great builder. His architecture still stands today. But he was frantically trying to ensure his place in history, frantically trying to ensure the longevity and the, and, the, and the glory of his name throughout history, but history knows him as a lunatic, a great builder, but a lunatic. 
And at this time that Mary was giving birth, Herod was wringing his hands because the Magi said to him that a a Messiah is born, a Savior is born, a King is born. And so he had uh, the kids in this vicinity because he couldn't find specifically Jesus. So he had all kids two years and younger killed. Some historians say it was as many as 64,000. It's unlikely the population of Bethlehem at that time was probably about 1,000. So it was probably more along the ball, in, in the ballpark of 20 kids to 40 kids and maybe a dozen in the surrounding areas were slaughtered. And that was also to fulfill prophecy that weeping, as I've never heard of before, would permeate that land. And can you imagine... If the king of kings shone his light into the world by being born in Herod's palace or one of Herod's buildings. I mean, Herod would have caused people to have to pay a price, to pay a premium to come see this child. The shepherds certainly wouldn't have gone to see Herod. The Jews hated Herod because he was in league with Rome. He built this architecture. He named it after Roman Caesars in order to to curry favor with them. The Jews wouldn't have gone into Herod's palace to see a light that was born. That would have so cheapened it. Jesus was born in a manger so that the least of these could come. And that's why the shepherds, the Bible tells us, they looked at each other after the angels spoke this message to them, and they said, let's go see this sight. And they ran, and they found the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And when the shepherds saw the baby, they saw, as, as Cassidy just sang, they saw the very face of God. And what is absolutely remarkable is that they were taken back Not by the power of God, though he has the power to speak the universe into existence. They were taken back by the humility of God. By how approachable God is. Who's afraid of a baby? Who's intimidated of a baby? God made himself a baby so that the least of these could come to him and not be afraid and not be intimidated. And the third observation of the Christmas story is this. When the light of life shines into our hearts, the light of life will shine through all of us, to the people around us. After the shepherds saw this sight, we pick up and we read in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the which the Lord has told us in verse 16. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. One of the ways that we know that the light of life has indeed been shown into our hearts is that then we become the light of the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. And sometimes we think, God, don't you mean you are the light of the world? I mean, I'm just, I'm just little old me. I'm not the light of the world. You are the light of the world. But Jesus' exact words were, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Because when the light of life shines into our heart, the light of life will shine through us, and then we become the light of the world. Because all around us, there are people like those airplane pilots who just need a little bit of light. They just need a little light, otherwise they are going to perish. 
You are that light. I'm that light. It's Christ shining through us. And He shines through us as we purpose to love them. And we love them in Jesus' name. And we love them and we say we love you because uh, Jesus put this love in our heart for you. All around us, people are perishing in helplessness and hopelessness and addictions and fear and anxiety and sadness and sorrow. And they need a little bit of light. You're that light. I'm that light. As we purpose to love them. Would you guys stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for this story. Thank you so much for this Christmas story. It is so characteristic of your personality. You're so amazing, God. You're so humble. You're so approachable. The same God who who spoke the cosmos into existence, the same God who was so holy that if the Hebrews touched a mountain in an unworthy manner where your presence was, even the animal would be struck dead. The same God who was so holy that when Uriah reached up to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant in a disrespectful manner, he was immediately struck dead. The same God whose name Yahweh was so holy that the Hebrews would not even utter it, they would not even pronounce it. This God shone into the world. Not in Herod's palace, but in humility, in a shepherd's cleft. So that all of us could run to you and all of us could be saved by you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your humility. We praise you for that. We thank you for your light and life that has shone into our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name that... Uh, You would be glorified in us this Christmas season as now we become the light of life for others. And guys, our response this Christmas Eve morning, let's just resolve to be the light of life to the people that God has placed in our peripheral vision. Uh, There's people in our direct vision, let's be the light of life to them, but let's not neglect the people in our peripheral vision and let's be the light of life to them as well. So, um, let's just respond with, with worship.